Welcome back to Songs for FRCR and Bone Tumors Part 2. We thought it was time for a new intro song and When the Lights Go Out seems very radiology appropriate. Let's head straight into part two, which is fibrous tumours, vascular lesions and everything else in between. I know you're all very, very excited to head straight into bone tumours, and hey, who can blame you? It is such a riveting topic. <laughs> I jest, of course, I find it insanely boring, but before we talk bone tumours and make it a bit more fun, I do have to stop and say hello and do a few shout outs to some of our listeners. I'm going to pick a couple of the many emails I have printed out here. We'll say hello to Cornelius from Berlin and Anthony Turk from the USA. How are you guys? Hope you're both doing really well. Hope revision and life are treating you well. And let's listen to one of your voice messages. Hello, I'm a um, radiology resident in Portugal and I'm training for my final exam. And I would ju just like to say to you that I fully appreciate your effort in doing this kind of revisions and has helped me a lot in this um, time of my training. So keep it up with the good work. Thank you. And can I just say, I would much rather be sitting my exam in Portugal than here in Brexit, Britain. But we don't want to get political. We're all friends here, regardless of how anyone votes. So thank you guys. Thank you for your messages. Keep them coming in. We will read them out every week. Let's talk bone tumours. We're starting with fibrous lesions. And the two I'm going to mention are non-ossifying fibroma and fibrous dysplasia. Let's start with non-ossifying fibroma. So what do you have to know about non-ossifying fibroma? First of all, non-ossifying fibroma and fibrous cortical defect are the exact same thing. We call it non-ossifying fibroma when it's more than two centimeters. Anything less than that and it's a fibrous cortical defect. Next thing you need to know are these are incidental lesions in the long bones of young people. So long bone, child or adolescent. And of course, now you want to know what it looks like. Well, x-rays are enough to diagnose it. What you will see is a lucent lesion. It is well-defined with a narrow zone of transition, a sclerotic margin and no matrix calcification. You might see a thinned cortex as well. And these, the natural history is, as the child gets older and reaches adulthood, these will spontaneously involute. 
So a non-ossifying fibroma is any fibrous cortical defect above two centimeters. It's in the long bones of child or adolescent and you'll see a lucent lesion with a narrow zone of transition, a sclerotic rim, no calcification and often you'll see thinning of the cortex on CT or MRI. X-rays are usually enough to diagnose. So that is non-ossifying fibroma. The other fibrous lesion is fibrous dysplasia. Again, this is a lesion of young adults and children. And what you'll see is abnormal fibrous tissue replacing the normal bone. You'll see it normally in the long bones, in the pelvic bones or at the skull base. Let's talk about each of these in turn. So first of all, fibrous dysplasia of the long bones. In the long bones, fibrous dysplasia tends to be central and in the metaphysis or diaphysis region. The most common complications are either a pathological fracture, usually of the femoral neck, or a bowing deformity. The characteristic appearance of fibrous dysplasia in the long bones is a ground glass matrix with peripheral sclerosis. So fibrous dysplasia, it is children and young adults. The normal bone is replaced by fibrous tissue. It can be, or usually, in the long bones, the ribs, the pelvic bones and the skull. We're talking about the long bones first of all. In the long bones, fibrous dysplasia tends to be central and in the metaphysis and diaphyseal region. And the classic appearance is a ground glass matrix with peripheral sclerosis. The most common complications of fibrous dysplasia in the long bones are fractures of the femoral neck and leg bowing deformities. The ribs have a similar appearance. Fibrous dysplasia in the ribs is also a ground glass with often peripheral sclerosis. So that's long bones. In the pelvic bones, which are also commonly affected by fibrous dysplasia, the disease here is often cystic. So in the pelvis, this cystic fibrous dysplasia will appear as a lucent lesion. Often on MR, you'll see hyperintensity on the proton density images. And finally, the skull base. So fibrous dysplasia can affect the skull base. If you have a young adult or a child with an expansile skull base lesion, then the primary differential is going to be fibrous dysplasia. If it's an adult with an expansile skull base lesion, your primary differential will be Paget's disease. In the skull base, again, the expansile lesion will have a ground glass matrix. So from the top, fibrous dysplasia, it's benign, it's a disease of young adults, children and young adults, and normal bone is replaced by fibrous tissue. It can usually occur in the long bones, the pelvic bones and the base of the skull. In the long bones, the most common appearance is a ground glass matrix with peripheral sclerosis. Complications that are common with fibrous dysplasia are pathological femoral neck fractures and leg bowing deformities. In the pelvic bones, fibrous dysplasia is often cystic and you'll see lucent lesions 
with hyperintensity on the proton density MR images. And finally, at the skull base, fibrous dysplasia is an expansile lesion. The age of the patient will be a giveaway with skull base expansile lesions. If they are young, then fibrous dysplasia is your primary differential. If it's an older person with an expansile skull base lesion, then your primary differential is going to be Paget's disease. Before we say goodbye to fibrous dysplasia, there are two syndromes that I have seen come up time and time again in practice exam questions. These are McCune-Albright syndrome and Mazabroad syndrome. So McCune-Albright syndrome is fibrous dysplasia. It's polyostotic fibrous dysplasia. So fibrous dysplasia can be either monostotic, where it affects only one bone, or polyostotic, where it affects multiple bones, usually unilaterally. So McCune-Albright syndrome is a polyostotic fibrous dysplasia, precocious puberty, and cafe au lait spots. And Mazabroad syndrome is fibrous dysplasia and intramuscular myxomas. The myxomas tend to be in the same place as the fibrous dysplasia. So if you have the dysplasia in the femur, then the myxoma is likely going to be in the muscles of the thigh. So fibrous lesions from the top. Non-ossifying fibroma is a fibrous cortical defect that is bigger than two centimeters. These are incidental lucent lesions, usually in the long bones, the legs of children and adolescents. You will see a lucent lesion, narrow zone of transition, sclerotic margin with no matrix calcification. These will go away by themselves as the child grows older. The other fibrous lesion is fibrous dysplasia, which is replacement of the normal cancellous bone by fibrous tissue. It can be either monostotic, so affecting one bone, or polyostotic, affecting multiple bones. And the most common places you'll find this are long bones and ribs, pelvis, and skull base. In the long bones, you will see ground glass matrix, with peripheral sclerosis and the most common complications are pathological fractures of the femoral neck and leg bowing deformities. In the pelvic bones it's usually a cystic disease and on MR you will see hyperintensity on proton density images and finally the skull base it will be an expansile lesion with a ground glass matrix. In an older person, your differential for that appearance is going to be Paget's disease. And finally, two syndromes. McCune-Albright is polyostotic fibrous dysplasia, precocious puberty and cafe au lait spots. And Mazabroad syndrome is fibrous dysplasia and myxomas, intramuscular myxomas. Well, let's have some music and then we'll move on to vascular lesions. This was the only song I could think of that had the word bones in it. So here we go.
It is pretty difficult to go wrong with Justin Timberlake, major childhood crush for me, as I'm sure he was for many of you. But let's move on from Mr. JT to vascular lesions. And there is only really one that I'm going to mention, it's hemangioma. These are ten a penny. We see them all the time when we're reporting MRIs. And I'm sure we know what they look like, but for sake of completion, I'm going to mention it. So a hemangioma, what you'll see on sagittal imaging, sagittal plane film or CT is coarse trabeculae. So long, linear, vertically orientated trabeculae, which are coarse and thickened, giving it a corduroy striped appearance. Why are the trabeculae coarse and thickened? It's because all the vascular channels in the hemangioma are causing bone resorption and this is reactive thickening. So on sagittal imaging you're going to see vertically orientated thickened trabeculae and those same trabeculae in axial imaging will give you lots and lots of dots, a polka dot appearance. On MR, like I said, we've seen them so many times on MR, we know what they look like. They are high signal on T1 and T2 because the fat within the hemangioma gives it the high T1 signal. That's it for hemangioma and that's actually it for vascular lesions. So this is boring, but from the top, I'm going to go over fibrous lesions again. Fibrous lesions, we did two, non-ossifying fibroma and fibrous dysplasia. Non-ossifying fibroma is a fibrous cortical defect bigger than two centimeters. It's a disease, an incidental lesion of children and adolescents. And what you will see on x-ray is usually enough to diagnose a lucent lesion, narrow zone of transition, sclerotic margin and no matrix calcification. You may see cortical thinning. These will go away as the kid gets older. Fibrous dysplasia, this was replacement of the regular cancellous bone by fibrous tissue. Most commonly you'll see it in the long bones and ribs, pelvic bones and skull base. In the long bones it's going to be ground glass matrix with peripheral sclerosis and the most common complications are a fractured femoral neck and leg bowing deformity. In the pelvis it's usually cystic and you'll see a lucent lesion, often on MRI, hyperintense on the proton density images, and at the skull base it will be an expansile lesion with ground glass matrix. Finally, two syndromes of fibrous dysplasia. McCoon-Albright is polyostotic fibrous dysplasia, precocious puberty, and cafe au lait spots, and Mazabrod syndrome is fibrous dysplasia with 
usually nearby intramuscular myxomas. And hemangioma was the next one. Hemangioma, we know what that is, a blood vessel lesion. And what happens there is resorption of the bone by vascular channels, which cause reactive thickening of the trabeculae. What you will see on plain film or on CT, on sagittal, is lots of long, linear, vertically orientated trabecular thickening. And on axial, you'll see a polka dot sign, high signal T1 and T2. A short musical break and then we'll do fat lesions. Thank you, Justin Timberlake. We're all having fun learning about bone tumours. Let's talk fatty lesions now. And there are two. There's a benign one, lipoma, and a malignant one, liposarcoma. Now, lipoma, first of all, intraosseous lipomas are not particularly common. Just think back to how many, if any, you've seen in your insane number of plain films you reported. So, if you do get it in an exam, the most common site they will mention it, it will be in the calcaneum. Other possible places are in the subtrochanteric region of the femur or the metatarsals, but my money will be on calcaneum. The description will be a lucent lesion, a well-defined lucent lesion in the calcaneum with central calcification, either central or ring-like calcification. With a description like that in the calcaneum, you should not even have to think about that answer. Now, a large proportion of lipomas can contain non-fatty tissue or non-adipose tissue, and that's not concerning. But when we worry about a lipoma actually being a well-differentiated liposarcoma, is if it's larger than 10 centimetres, if it contains thick septations, if there is globular or nodular soft tissue surrounding it, and if the composition is less than 75% fat. So fatty lesions are very quick and very simple. A lucent, well-circumscribed lesion within the calcaneus with thin peripheral sclerosis and central calcification or ring-like calcification is an intraosseous lipoma. It can also be in the subtrochanteric region of the femur or the metatarsals. If you have a what seems like a lipoma but is bigger than 10 centimetres, has thick septations, has globular or nodular soft tissue 
and is less than 75% fatty, then you have to be concerned about a well-differentiated liposarcoma. And that's it. Let's have another quick break and then we'll move on to hemopoietic lesions. Right, we're moving on to hemopoietic lesions and there are one, two, three, four, five I want to do. Two are benign, the two benign ones are giant cell tumour and Langerhans cell histiocytosis. And then there are three malignant ones, Ewing sarcoma and multiple myeloma and finally a quick mention on lymphoma. So let's start with giant cell tumour. And like I've said, it's benign, 95% are benign, 5% are malignant, but you can't tell which is which based on imaging. So who gets giant cell tumour? These are skeletally mature young people aged between 20 and 40. So what will this tumour look like in these skeletally mature 20 to 40 year olds? Well, it's a tumour, it's an eccentric tumour which starts in the metaphysis and it will extend across the physis into the epiphysis. It's a lucent lesion, well-defined, non-sclerotic margin. You can get multifocal giant cell tumours in Paget's disease and in hyperparathyroidism. And treatment is curatage or resection. So giant cell tumour is an eccentric metaphyseal lesion which extends to involve the physis and epiphysis. It's a lucent well-defined lesion that does not have a sclerotic margin and multifocal giant cell tumours are found in the two P's, Paget's and hyperparathyroidism. Treatment is curatage or resection. Let's move on to our next lesion, eosinophilic granuloma which is the lesion of Langerhans cell histiocytosis. As the name suggests, this is caused by proliferation of histiocytes. And the demographic here is children between the ages of 5 and 10. The most common locations for eosinophilic granuloma are the skull, the facial bones, the spine and long bones. I'm going to tell you what it looks like in each of them. So in the skull, classically an eosinophilic granuloma is a lytic lesion with a beveled edge. That's the description they often give in exams. 
from the skull down to the facial bones, an eosinophilic granuloma will cause a resorption of the maxilla or the mandible and often it will give you the floating tooth sign. In the spine, eosinophilic granuloma is one of the many causes of vertebra plana, which is a completely collapsed vertebra. And finally, in the long bones, eosinophilic granuloma can appear very destructive, a destructive lucent lesion with an aggressive periosteal reaction and is often confused with Ewing sarcoma. So from the top, we are going through the five different lesions from hemopoietic cells and we've covered two of them already, giant cell tumour and eosinophilic granuloma. So remember the giant cell tumour is a lesion beginning in the metaphysis and extending to the epiphysis. It's an eccentric lesion at the end of long bones in patients between the ages of 20 and 40. An eccentric, lucent lesion, well-defined with no sclerotic margin. That's a giant cell tumour. We then did Langerhans cell histiocytosis and the lesion is called an eosinophilic granuloma, which I told you you can find usually in the skull, facial bones, spine and long bones. In the skull, classically, it's a lytic lesion with a beveled edge. In the spine, it's one of the many causes of vertebra plana. In the facial bones, it will cause resorption of the mid-face, the maxilla or the mandible, and will give you a floating tooth. And in the long bones, it looks like an aggressive lesion, although it's benign. It looks like a radiolucent destructive lesion with an aggressive periosteal reaction, usually a lamellated pattern. Let's take a break, then we'll cover the three malignant ones, Ewing sarcoma, multiple myeloma, and a quick word on lymphoma. Okay, let's move on to Ewing's sarcoma. Ewing's sarcoma is the second most common paediatric primary bone tumour. The most common is osteosarcoma, with Ewing's coming in second. Unfortunately, the presentation is very non-specific, and it can present a lot like osteomyelitis with systemic symptoms. They often have fever, and they present with pain. On imaging, the lesion is usually very aggressive. It has a permeative bone destruction pattern and a very aggressive periosteal reaction. There is usually, in most exam questions, an associated soft tissue mass. So a permeative destructive pattern, aggressive periosteal reaction and a soft tissue mass. The main differentials, therefore, which you can imagine, for a child with a lytic lesion would be Ewing sarcoma, 
osteomyelitis, eosinophilic granuloma that I've already said can look very similar to Ewing's and finally metastases, usually from neuroblastoma. So I'm going to repeat Ewing's sarcoma. It is the second most common paediatric primary bone tumour and it's highly malignant with non-specific presentation. They present with pain and usually also systemic symptoms, fever and the like. It can appear very similar to osteomyelitis, both clinically and with imaging. On imaging, you will see an aggressive lesion. The characteristic description is a permeative pattern, so permeative pattern of bone destruction with a very aggressive periosteal reaction and almost always a soft tissue mass associated. Your four main differentials for an aggressive lytic bone lesion in a child are Ewing sarcoma, osteomyelitis, eosinophilic granuloma and metastases, usually from neuroblastoma. So from the top are hemopoietic tumours. I make no apology for the repetition because it's the only way to learn something. We started with giant cell tumour. Giant cell tumour is a tumour of skeletally mature 20 to 40 year olds. The vast majority, 95% are benign. This will be an eccentric metaphyseal lesion that extends into the epiphysis. It will be well-defined lytic with no sclerotic margin. You can get multifocal giant cell tumours in Paget's disease and hyperparathyroid, the two Ps, and treatment is curatage or resection. The second lesion was eosinophilic granuloma of Langerhans cell histiocytosis. I said these can classically appear in four places, in the skull, facial bones, spine and in long bones. In the skull, classically, it is a tumour, a lytic lesion with a bevelled edge. In the facial bones, it causes resorption of the bones of the mandible and maxilla and will give you a floating tooth. In the spine, it's one of the causes of vertebra planar. The other causes we will go through in our quiz episode. And in the long bones, finally, Eosinophilic granuloma is a destructive lucent lesion with an aggressive periosteal reaction that looks very similar to Ewing sarcoma. Which brings us on to Ewing sarcoma, the second most common primary paediatric bone tumour. And this presents like osteomyelitis with systemic symptoms and pain. Imaging wise, it also looks like osteomyelitis, aggressive lesion classically permeative bone destruction pattern, aggressive periosteal reaction and almost always an associated soft tissue mass. Your four main differentials, you should know these by now, I've said it about 500 times, four main differentials for an aggressive lytic lesion in a child are osteomyelitis, eosinophilic granuloma, metastases from neuroblastoma, and Ewing's sarcoma. Before moving on to multiple myeloma, I just want to remind you of the demographics again. So for giant cell tumour, it's 20 to 40 year olds. These are skeletally mature patients. For eosinophilic granuloma, it's children between five and 10. And for Ewing's sarcoma, again, it's children. 
We now move on to multiple myeloma, which we know is a disease of adults, adults over the age of 40. If you have a single multiple myeloma lesion, that's called a plasma cytoma. And most people with a plasma cytoma will get proper myeloma everywhere within five years. We all know what multiple myeloma looks like, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But classically, it's multiple, lots and lots of small lytic lesions. And you can also get thinning of the cortex with endosteal scalloping. Now, although multiple lytic lesions throughout an adult skeleton may be myeloma, obviously the main differential there is going to be metastases. And there are a few ways to tell myeloma and multiple metastases apart. The first of which is that myeloma arises in the red marrow. So the red marrow is mainly in the flat bones, the hip bone, skulls, vertebrae. And you won't find myelomatous lesions where there is minimal red marrow, particularly places like the pedicles and the spine. So you won't find myeloma lesions where there is minimal red marrow. And also, on a bone scan, myeloma can be negative, whereas most metastases, or the vast majority of metastases, are positive. That's myeloma. I'm going to quickly mention lymphoma also. Lymphoma in the bone primarily is very rare, and if it does occur, it's usually older patients. You'll see bone lymphoma as very aggressive and lytic. And it's one of the differentials for ivory vertebra. An ivory vertebra is where a vertebra is diffusely sclerotic. And there are a bunch of differentials for this. So in children, the differentials for an ivory vertebra would be Hodgkin's disease. That's usually the right answer in a question. Then osteosarcoma, osteoblastoma and all the other blastomas, neuroblastoma, medulloblastoma, and of course, Ewing sarcoma. I'll say that again. So an ivory vertebral body is a diffusely sclerotic vertebral body, and most commonly associated with lymphoma, but it has a bunch of differentials. In children, most commonly, it's Hodgkin's lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease. And the other differentials will be osteosarcoma, osteoblastoma, neuroblastoma, medulloblastoma and Ewing sarcoma, so every bad cancer. In an exam, if in doubt, it's most likely Hodgkin's disease. And then with adults, the causes of an ivory vertebra in an adult would be blastic metastases from the breast or prostate, lymphoma, TB, chordoma, hemangioma and Sappho syndrome. And a warning for our contestants in the upcoming quiz, the causes of ivory vertebra may well be one of the quiz questions, so make sure you know it. So, hemopoietic lesions from the top. Giant cell tumour, eosinophilic granuloma, Ewing sarcoma, multiple myeloma and lymphoma. Giant cell tumour we'll start with ages between 20 and 40 lytic lesion beginning in the metaphysis extending to the epiphysis no sclerotic margin it is well defined and eccentric you can get multifocal giant cell tumors in the two p's paget's disease and parathyroidism treatment is curatage or resection 
Next, eosinophilic granuloma is the lesion of Langerhans cell histiocytosis. You will see this classically in four places, the skull, the facial bones, vertebrae and long bones. In the skull, classically lytic lesion with a beveled edge. In the facial bones, classically floating tooth from absorption of the maxilla or the mandible. In the spine, one of the causes of vertebra planar and in the long bones, aggressive lesion with usually a laminated aggressive periosteal reaction. Another warning to our quiz contestants, make sure you know the causes of vertebra planar, they may well be in the quiz. Moving swiftly on to Ewing's sarcoma, the second most common primary pediatric brain tumour. I feel like I've said that 500 times now. It is presenting with symptoms very similar to osteomyelitis, pain and fever, often with a soft tissue swelling and on imaging it will look like osteomyelitis but classically permeative bone destruction, aggressive periosteal reaction, soft tissue mass, very aggressive lesion and I've said this again 500 times, there are four main differentials for a child with an aggressive lytic lesion. Those are Ewing sarcoma, osteomyelitis, eosinophilic granuloma and metastatic disease, most commonly neuroblastoma. Let's move on to multiple myeloma. I'm not going to talk much about this, there's not really much to say. Most common primary bone tumour in adults over the age of 40 and presentation is multiple lytic lesions throughout the skeleton wherever you will find red marrow. You can get cortical thinning, endosteal scalloping and the main differential will be multiple metastases. Remember places where there is minimal red marrow like the pedicles of the spine won't have myelomatous involvement and Myeloma can be negative on bone scans, whereas metastases rarely are negative on bone scans. Finally, lymphoma. Primary bone lymphoma is exceedingly rare. I've never seen it. It's an aggressive lytic lesion, as you would expect, and one of, well, the top differential for ivory vertebra. It's the top differential for ivory vertebra, but the other differentials are in children, top differential, like I said, is lymphoma, particularly Hodgkin's lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease. The other differentials are all the bad cancers, osteoblastoma, osteosarcoma, neuroblastoma, medulloblastoma, Ewing sarcoma. In adults, again, the main differential for ivory vertebra is lymphoma. And the others would be any blastic metastases from breast or prostate. It will be Paget's, TB, Chordoma, Hemangioma and Sappho syndrome. That's it. Let's take a break. We've done hemopoietic lesions. We're going to move on to something. I'll decide in a second while you're listening to the music. Drums.
Right, next I'm doing a miscellaneous group. There are four lesions I want to talk about which don't really belong in anything else. So the first of those four is chordoma. Chordoma is highly a malignant lesion and the giveaway for chordoma is it arises in the midline in the axial skeleton. It's always bang on midline. So either it's going to be in the sphenooccipital region, in the body of C2 vertebra or midline in the sacrococcygeal region. So always midline, a highly destructive malignant lesion with irregular scalloped borders. It does have necrosis and this necrosis will show up as calcification. So to recap, chordoma is malignant, highly destructive, scalloped borders in the midline of the axial skeleton. So either sphenooccipital, C2 body or sacrococcygeal region in the midline often has calcifications within it that represent necrosis. The next lesion, there are three more in my miscellaneous group. They are simple bone cyst, aneurysmal bone cyst and adamantinoma. We'll start with the simple bone cyst, also known as a unicameral bone cyst. You're practically guaranteed to get a question on this in the exam and if you get it wrong then shame on you. It's so easy. A simple bone cyst is a hollow or fluid filled structure and you'll find it classically in the humerus or in the femur in the diaphysis. So hollow or fluid filled cyst in the shaft of the humerus or the femur and what will you see? Up to two thirds of them will have pathological fracture and what you'll see is the fallen fragment sign which is a little bit of the cortex, a cortical fracture fragment fallen into the cyst if you see that, it is pathognomic of a unicameral bone cyst. I've said it already, it's always central within a bone. And on MRI, you will see fluid-fluid levels. The fluid-fluid levels are not specific to unicameral bone cyst. You can get it in other things. The key here is that you won't have any periosteal reaction. So, a unicameral bone cyst is a simple bone cyst that you'll most commonly see in the shaft of the humerus or the femur. It will not have any periosteal reaction. It will be hollow or fluid filled and two thirds will have the fallen fragment sign. So a bit of a fracture fragment from a pathological fracture within the cyst itself. Fluid fluid levels on MR. Treatment wise, the next one is an aneurysmal bone cyst. Now, both aneurysmal bone cysts and the simple unicameral bone cysts are lesions of children and adolescents. So that's the similarity they have. An aneurysmal bone cyst is also a, as the name suggests, cystic lesion, which is expansile, hence the word aneurysmal. Now, an aneurysmal bone cyst can also commonly arise next to a aggressive malignant tumour. And unlike the simple bone cysts that I said are always central within the diaphysis, an aneurysmal bone cyst can be anywhere. It can be central or eccentric. 
as well as being central or eccentric in the bone, it can also be in the posterior elements of the spine. And another difference between aneurysmal bone cyst and a simple bone cyst is that an aneurysmal bone cyst will often have a smooth periosteal reaction at the proximal and distal ends. Again, as expected, you will see fluid levels on MRI. So quick comparison of simple bone cyst and aneurysmal bone cyst. A simple bone cyst is central within the humeral or femoral shaft. It's a hollow or fluid-filled lesion and will not have any periosteal reaction. Two-thirds have a pathological fracture associated and will give you the fallen fragment sign, which is pathognomic of a unicameral bone cyst. You'll see fluid levels on MR, but that's not specific. An aneurysmal bone cyst is, again, a lesion of children and adolescents. It is often associated with other tumours, other malignant lesions. You can have a secondary aneurysmal bone cyst growing next to them. And it can be anywhere in the bone, central or eccentric. does not have to be central like the simple bone cyst. It often has a periosteal reaction at the ends of the lesion and again fluid levels are present. Finally adamantinoma. Adamantinoma is a lesion of young people between the ages of 10 and 30. It is a multilocular expansile lytic lesion within the cortex of the proximal tibia. It has a classic location the proximal tibia and description, like I said, is multilocular, expansile, lytic, often described as being a bit of a soap bubble appearance. There usually is no periosteal reaction. You can have areas of lysis interspersed with areas of sclerosis, usually eccentric and is intensely enhancing on MR. And adamantinoma can give metastases to the lungs, to bone, lymph nodes, the pericardium and the liver. So adamantinoma, quick recap, it is a disease of young people between the age of 10 and 30. Classic location is the tibia, proximal tibia. And it will be a soap bubble appearance lesion. So multilocular, expansile, lytic cortical lesion in the proximal tibia of a young person between the ages of 10 and 30. It's eccentric, usually no periosteal reaction, and has intense contrast enhancement on MR. Metastases are possible, and they occur to the lung, the bone, lymph nodes, pericardium, and liver. So that was chordoma, simple bone cyst, aneurysmal bone cyst, adamantinoma. There are only two more things. It's the home stretch. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll finish off.
I said there are two more things and there are two more things. It's not really a tumour, but no talk on bone tumours is complete without mentioning myositis ossificans. What is myositis ossificans? It's bone that forms within the skeletal muscle after trauma. The trauma doesn't have to be major and the reason I think it's so important is because myositis ossificans can look a lot like par-osteo-osteosarcoma. If you can't remember what par-osteo-osteosarcoma is, go back to bone tumours part one and it will all come back to you. So, it's important to be able to differentiate par-osteo-osteosarcoma and myositis ossificans because there are many exam questions I've seen in books that want you to do just that. So what is the natural history of myositis ossificans? Like I said, it's just bone that forms within skeletal muscle. So in the first couple of weeks, weeks one to two, you just get a soft tissue mass. Between weeks three and four, you have an osteoid matrix forming. And this is the time when it looks like an osteosarcoma. As this osteoid matrix forms within the skeletal muscle, it can give rise to a periosteal reaction in the adjacent bone. That's why it can look like an osteosarcoma. In weeks five to week eight, the edges of the lesion begin to mature into bone. So you get this peripheral calcification and then as time goes on, the whole lot begins to mature and then after six months, it begins to decrease in size and involute. So the main way they're going to show you what the answer is in an exam is describing the location of the calcification. With myositis ossificans, like I've just said, the periphery of the lesion will mature first. So you get peripheral calcification first. A lesion adjacent to a long bone within the skeletal muscle that is peripherally ossified is more likely to be a myositis ossificans. And you don't biopsy these because it causes unnecessary problems. All you need to do is follow up imaging which will confirm the diagnosis because you know what the natural history is for myositis ossificans. So a lesion within the skeletal muscle adjacent to a bone, if the ossification is peripheral, then myositis ossificans is what they are getting at. If the ossification is central, then it's more likely to be a par-osteal osteosarcoma. If you suspect myositis, you do not biopsy because the biopsy can look like sarcoma and you end up causing the patient unnecessary harm and surgery. So quick recap of myositis ossificans. It's bone formation next to a long bone because of trauma. What you'll see is something that resembles a par-osteal osteosarcoma, but the best way or the only way they will really make you tell them apart in an exam is the location of the ossification. A par-osteal osteosarcoma will be heavily calcified centrally, whereas myositis, you'll have the ossification, calcification peripherally, and that will occur between weeks five to eight. If you think it is myositis ossificans, if the history fits and the imaging fits, you do not biopsy.
you just follow up imaging and confirm that the progression of the lesion is as you would expect for myositis. Let's take another break and then move on to the final topic. We are almost done. And finally, we've talked about so many bone tumours over the course of these two episodes, but it's really important to remember that metastases are over 10 times more common than any primary bone tumour. Now, metastases can be lytic or blastic, and knowing which tumours cause which should really be second nature to you by now. So, first of all, breast metastases and mets from the stomach and colon can feature in either list. They can be lytic or they can be blastic. So I'm not going to include those. Remember, breast metastases, stomach metastases and colonic metastases can be lytic or blastic. So they're not in my list. Although they're not in the lists, they are the most common differentials. So let's start with lytic lesions. What causes lytic metastases? Well, the way I remember it is lytic is L-T-C. So L-T-K sounds like lytic, lung, thyroid, kidney, L-T-K. And what causes blastic metastases? I remember this as everything down below. So prostate, seminoma, transitional cell carcinoma, and then mucinous tumours and carcinoid. So let me repeat what I've just said. We need to know what causes lytic and blastic metastases. Breast cancer metastases and stomach and colon feature in both lists. They can be either lytic or blastic. The lytic list is LTK, lytic, lung, thyroid, kidney. And the blastic is everything that's associated with the urine down below. So prostate, seminoma, transitional cell carcinoma, and then mucinous tumours and carcinoid. Finally, a common exam question regarding metastases is differentiating between an osteoporotic fracture of the spine and a metastatic fracture of the spine. And the way to differentiate these, I'll give you a few. So things that suggest a vertebral body fracture is a malignant fracture would be posterior bulging of the vertebra, an associated epidural mass and high ADC values. So an osteoporotic fracture will have lower ADC values than a malignant fracture 
on MRI diffusion weighted imaging. So a quick recap of our final point on metastatic disease. Remember, METs are by far the most common bony lesion you will see and are much, much more common than primary bone tumours. Metastases can be either lytic or blastic, i.e. sclerotic. And remember, breast, stomach and colon metastases feature in both the lytic and blastic list. The purely lytic metastases are the words that sound like lytic, so lung, thyroid, kidney, LTK. The blastic or sclerotic metastases are all the urinary related ones, so prostate, seminoma, transitional cell carcinoma, and then mucinous tumours and carcinoid. Finally, I mentioned a common exam question was differentiating a pathological vertebral body fracture from an osteoporotic vertebral body fracture. And the best ways to do this were posterior bulging of the vertebral body, suggests malignancy. An associated epidural mass suggests malignancy. And higher ADC values on diffusion-weighted MRI suggests malignancy. So that's it. Bone tumours part two is done. We have covered fibrous lesions, non-ossifying fibroma and fibrous dysplasia. We have covered vascular lesions. We've covered hematopoietic lesions. We've covered fat-containing lesions and a bunch of miscellaneous things. And then we finally covered metastases. Our next episode is going to be a quiz. We have two registrars that have put themselves forward to test their knowledge on bone tumours. If you want to play along at home, you are more than welcome. Just make sure you revise the two episodes beforehand. So we hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please do keep your emails, texts, tweets, voice messages coming in. We will try to keep playing them before each episode begins. Please do join us next week for our very exciting first ever Songs for FRCR game show, which we're calling Name That Tumour. So please join us. We hope you enjoy it as much as we have enjoyed making it. See you next week. Have a great week, guys.